the underground bunker of the Civitas Studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's Civitalk with your hosts, Brooke Medina and Ray Nothstein. We're here to connect culture with civics, making it relevant to your daily life. And dare we say, existence at a time where too many are triggered and offended. So, relax, but buckle up and let's wade into the deep end of what's really happening in your old North State. Welcome to another edition of Civitalk. Today we have an important guest, and we're glad to have him on the show, Joseph Campbell, who is a professor in the School of Communication at American University, did his PhD work at uh, Chapel Hill, and he wrote an entire book on polling. I know a lot of our listeners out there are skeptical of polling right now, so he wrote a book called Lost in a Gallop. Polling Failure in U.S. Presidential Elections. You can get it at Amazon. Uh, I read the re- book, reviewed it at Civitas, and I, I've written many blog posts just on kind of some of the poignant, prescient uh, thoughts that I think are really relevant to this election as well. And you can find that on our website at Civitas. And it's just fascinating if you like the history of polling and some of the big failures in history. I think people like, and you mentioned this in your book, people like the horse races, uh, Joseph, and um it was just fascinating to read some of this history and and to know that polling is not an exact science, even though some in the media treat it that way. Why don't you tell us what interested you in this topic and why you wrote this book, Joe? Ray, thank you very much, first of all, for having me on your show. It is a real pleasure, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be talking about Lost in a Gallop. And this book sort of stems from the morning after the 2016 election. And the shock that accompanied Donald Trump's victory in 2016. And I remember I was staying up like till three, four in the morning. And I remember writing a blog post about how the shock of 2016 was akin to that of of 1948, the polling failure of 1948, when Thomas E. Dewey was supposed to win easily over President Harry Truman. And Truman, in the most astonishing polling failure in, in presidential history, defeated Dewey by four and a half percentage points and and you know and and won re-election. It was it was astonishing. And the shock in 1948 was was profound and it rivaled that of 19 of 2016. So that's really the where the book began. And um, besides I was looking for a new book project anyway in late 2016, early 2017. And that project became Lost in a Gallop, which is which offers a rather comprehensive look at cases of prominent polling failure in U.S. presidential elections, going back to the dawn of modern opinion research in the mid-1930s. And that the book really begins with a look at the Literary Digest polling debacle of 1936, when the Literary Digest, a, a well-known, venerable weekly news magazine, conducted a poll, and it had been conducting polls of presidential elections for for three or four cycles, and every presidential election since 1924, the Literary Digest picked the winner correctly based on a huge poll that it, that it conducted, sending out postcard ballots to millions of Americans and asking that they send the ballots back with the choice of candidates designated. It was also, by the way, a subscription building device that the Literary Digest uh, employed because they on every postcard they they had an offer to to subscribe to the magazine. In 1936, they they did this again. This massive mail-in poll sent out 10 million ballots and received 2.3 million postcard ballots in return. 
calculated all those ballots, processed it, and added it all up, and it pointed to a fairly comfortable victory by Al Flandon, mm-hmm. the Republican candidate. <laughs> in 1936, Franklin Roosevelt was running for re-election, and he wiped out Al Flandon in one of the most lopsided presidential elections in, in history. Landon carried only two of the then 48 states as this tidal wave, this this enormous landslide swept the country. The Literary Digest was acutely, acutely embarrassed, and it was the first time its polling had gone wrong. And for the Digest, it was a 19.9 percentage point miss, 20 percentage points, unheard of almost. And it subsequently went out of business, not because of the not because of the poll failure, but because it was just not able to keep up with the upstart magazines, rival magazines like Time Magazine at the time. So that was really the origins, the earliest days of what we recognize as modern public opinion research, because George Gallup, Elmo Roper, Archibald Crossley began. They initiated their quasi-scientific polling methodologies in 1935 and 36, and, and the 36 presidential election was the first one in which they were polling. And all three of them got it, got the, the winner correct. They pointed to the right winner with varying degrees of accuracy. So it, it, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a field in which the history of polling failure is not terribly well known, and Lost in a Gallup seeks to fill that gap and seeks to address that, that gap in, in the historical understanding. So Joseph, this is um, fascinating and I think really helpful for people that just, I mean, it's so easy to issue these sort of just general like responses since 2016 that polling doesn't work, it's all fake news, et cetera, things like that. And uh, Civitas as a public policy organization that does live caller polling at least about 10 times a year. Um, you know, we use polling to inform the public policy conversation. And so we find great value on that front. Um, But we are always quick to warn people that this is a polls are a snapshot in time. They are not supposed to be prophetic, if you will, um, as to what outcomes will come to, you know, will come to fruition. But uh, I'm curious from you, just uh, as you've taken this survey of polling failures throughout history, what would you tell the average news consumer or even a journalist that might be listening to this how to uh, how to approach polling? What what kind of tool should it be used as? I think polls should be treated by journalists and, and other news consumers as as important evidence. But I think polls should be treated warily with a degree of skepticism. And I say that because the record of polling in presidential elections is one of is a checkered record. It's not one of, of all success and certainly not one of all failure. But polls have failed. Polls have been in error often enough for us to be a bit wary about them, a bit wary about what they're saying. And they they don't go wrong when they do go wrong. They don't go wrong in the same way. It's not all like the 1948 Dewey defeats Truman election when across the board the pollsters were epically wrong. It's more nuanced than that. Polling failure can be landslides that pollsters have not anticipated, which was the case in 1980 with the Ronald Reagan election. Reagan won in a near landslide in in an election that most pollsters said on the eve of the election that it was too close to call, that the race between Reagan and President Jimmy Carter was just too close. 
and a, a, a near landslide ensued. So I think polls, polls and, and consumers of polls, you know, deserve to be treating polls with some wariness, with some detachment, with some skepticism. I have a kind of a follow up related to that, Joe. I mean, do you think that's health more, a little bit more healthy for our republic, our democracy, to treat them skeptically? at least to some degree, because it seems like now, and you point this out in your book, you know, the, the media was much more skeptical of polls in the past. You had snide comments, of course, from newspaper reporters. You had, you know, snide comments sometimes on the night of the election. I know you talked about uh, Dan Rather in 2000 when he was covering Florida. And there, of course, there's other examples. But do you think it's it's a little bit healthier for our republic to maybe not have the media just using polls to kind of drive the story because you could argue maybe it maybe it um, suppresses turnout if you just have polls constantly saying someone's up 10, 15 points or it influences the election more than it should. Is that a, is that a fair thing to say or is, is that just something we shouldn't worry about? I think it is. I think we should be wary about what the polls might be doing to turnout. It's a very difficult equation to, to tease out. But there is enough evidence out there historically to suggest that that polls can have that kind of influence. In 1948, for example, when Dewey, Thomas E. Dewey, was supposed to win the election easily over Harry Truman, and the polls were saying that, the pundits were saying that, the press was saying that, they were all picking up on, on what the polls were indicating, and it looked like it was a done deal. In fact, some pollsters were saying, as early as September, this election is over. Essentially, this is over. And turnout among Republican voters, who normally would have been supporters of Thomas E. Dewey, appears to have been depressed in 1948. The turnout overall that year was much lower than it had been in previous presidential elections, noticeably lower. So there is a sense that that could have been a factor, and I believe it was a factor, in that elections outcome in 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 Harry Truman's surprising unexpected shocking election re-election victory so polls might have that effect they just might have that effect in terms of depressing turnout if it doesn't look as if the candidate you favor is going to is going to win or has a chance of winning in 2016 there has been su- suggestion and speculation that polls and and in particular poll-based statistical forecasts that signaled Hillary Clinton was a sure winner also might have depressed turnout. The Huffington Post pre-election forecast based on polls had Hillary Clinton at a 98.2% chance of winning the election. Right. The Princeton Election Consortium during the week before the election had her, had her win probability at as, as high as 99%. In the face of those sort of overwhelming numbers, it could have been the case that some Clinton supporters did not turn out to the polls, figuring, why bother? Her yeah, election cer- is, a, is a certainty. I certainly thought Clinton was going to win, but I used to live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I lived up there for seven years. And the night before the election, uh, I think Trump and Pence were together in Grand Rapids. And I walked across the bridge many times to work on, on the Grand River and I saw that line to that Trump rally, and it was a way across the bridge, and I knew the venue they were in, and it was packed. And I just thought, 
maybe this guy has a shot because just the the immense crowds I was seeing kind of uh, at the week of the election. And so I kind of wanted to do one more follow-up. If someone's skeptical of the polls, they're watching out there and they're saying, uh, you know, I, I don't buy into the polls, blah, blah, blah. You had comments, uh, I think it was last week from Frank Luntz saying that if they get this election wrong, the polling business is done. And I think that's a little bit hyperbolic, but it shows you to the extent that I think a lot of people out there are skeptical of the polls. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, what do you see? What are some things in this election that maybe you could point to that could say there could be polling problems? I mean, is there anything out there that you think of that, you know, when you when you write a book like this, is there something you can point to and say, hey, maybe maybe there could be something off in the polls? It could be. We could see, although I don't think it's terribly likely, we could see a reprise of 2016 when Trump carried important upper Midwest states, such as Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, by very narrow margins, in places where the polls signaled that that he had little to no chance. In Wisconsin, on the eve of the election, the real clear politics average had Hillary Clinton ahead by 6.5 percentage points. And Trump won that state by less than a percentage point. So it was a it was a seven point miss. That's a substantial miss in, in in polling these days or any day really. So it's possible those states seem to be kind of close again. And Minnesota's in the mix too, potentially. But then again, so is Texas. Texas right. four years ago we weren't even thinking that Texas was going to be a problem, and it might not be a problem for Trump this year. But still, it looks like it's a little closer than it was in 2016. So no two elections are quite the same, and no two polling failures are alike either. And the dynamics change election to election. And that's why I don't think that we're going to see a reprise of 2016 in which Trump ran this, what, inside straight to to collect all the important swing states, and then a couple more that he wasn't expected to take to win the presidency. The dynamics election of elections are always in flux. They're always changing. And so, therefore, are polls and polling failures. That's, that's a principal reason why they're not the same. I do think that the enthusiasm factor is one that we should not completely rule out, because enthusiasm for Trump seems very deep, far deeper, far more profound than that for Joe Biden. Biden is just not generating any kind of enthusiasm among his supporters. This might be important, or it could be a false signal too, right? because pundits have been wrong in the past about interpreting or overthinking about enthusiasm, crowd size, the prevalence of lawn signs and the like. In, in 2012, Peggy Newton, Noonan of the Wall Street Journal famously referred to those kind of factors, yard signs, enthusiasm, and said that while everyone is looking at the polls, Mitt Romney is sneaking into the White House. Well, it didn't happen, of course. And Obama, President Obama, won re-election that year by almost four percentage points. It wasn't really, really close. But then again, there's 1948. And one of the indications that Thomas E. Dewey was in trouble in his race against Harry Truman was the enthusiasm of the crowds for Truman toward the end of the election. And in retrospect, it's possible that those crowds were signaling late movement of undecided voters and third-party voters to Harry Truman. So it's not entirely necessary, I think, to rule out 
crowd size and sort of keep that in mind as, as a factor, maybe not the dominant factor, but a factor when you're assessing what kind of outcome we're going to be looking at in this year's presidential election. And, and the enthusiasm of the crowds surely are on Trump's side. Then again, we have we have the whole COVID-19 environment to deal with, the whole pandemic. And I think that has scrambled the politics in this country for sure. And it's probably going to scramble polling in some way mm-hmm. that we may not be able to anticipate. Yes. But I think we should be mindful of that as well, because early voting and voting by mail, you know, most Americans are not used to this kind of approach. And mail in mail voting might might pose problems. There might be factors in the mail-in ballots that will disqualify large numbers of people, you know, because they didn't have the, what, the secret envelope wasn't properly signed or it didn't contain the ballot as it should. I mean, all these potentially disqualifying factors are there. And without the experience, without deep experience in this kind of voting, <laughs> it could, it could have, it could have an effect on this year's election. So we just don't know. There are many imponderables this year, perhaps more than ever, given the pandemic. Absolutely. I think that that is uh, just the confounding variable in so much of this and uh, has has basically put uh, taken many people out of their stride in the public policy arena and the political arena just because everything we forecasted um, in terms of even, you know, on the public policy front, things that you hope to accomplish, it's all drowned out by COVID. Uh, but one thing remains Uh, Based on some polling from Pew Research, uh, eight out of 10 Americans continue to say that the economy is one of their top priorities when they're considering who they're going to vote for. And so um, obviously Joe Biden and Donald Trump present two, two different visions for what that should look like. And so it will be interesting to see how how that factors in. But of course, you can't think about the American economy without thinking about COVID-19 right now. It's just not possible. But a lot of that happens at the state level, which brings me to my next question. And that's, uh, you know, we've got, so your book covers the failures of presidential polling. um, And obviously that means that there's just, there's so much uh, divergence among the states and how, and how their constituencies vote. Um, to include the r- rural urban divides, but do you see there as uh, being potential issues or even maybe advantages to statewide polling where you're looking at just state races such as the governor's race or treasurer things like that that um, can make it easier or perhaps more difficult to poll than the presidential races? Interesting question. I think that state polls were the culprit in 2016 quite clearly because they they were off in in clear measure in very important states, including Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And had Hillary Clinton won those three states, which she was widely expected to do, she would have won the presidency. And so polls and state polls can really make a big difference in in, uh, in, in close elections or even not so close elections. I mean, Hillary won the popular vote by what, uh, three percentage points in in 2016, largely because she blew out Trump in California and just rolled up a huge, what was it, 30 yeah, points? It was, it, was, it was almost two to one, Joe. Uh, yeah, it was, it was astonishing. So, um, so there's a little nuance to those national numbers. And, and many people say, well, the polls came very close to getting it right. Well, yeah, true. But, you know, Hillary also did not have her support evenly distributed across the country by any means. And that, and that near two to one 
outcome in California, you know, save the polls, essentially. I'd like to say a quick word about the economy. It was a very interesting point you raised a moment ago, Brooke. And and the there's a recent Gallup poll, which I think was released this month, that suggests that 56% of the poll respondents said that they were better off now than they were four years ago. And that's, that's an astounding number, an astounding percentage. I wonder two things, whether that result is in somehow an error, whether it's an outlier, that it's just, just sort of incorrect, or whether it's signaling that despite the pandemic, people do have a real strong feeling and connection to the economy as it was in this country before January or February this year, and that that might help Donald Trump in the end. I'm not going to put too fine a point on that, but that, but that number, that data point, is very intriguing. And uh, uh, if, if it is an outlier, if it is an error, then okay, that explains it. But if, if it's not, then we might be looking at a, uh, a scenario where the economy is perceived to have been stronger, or a stronger factor for voters in supporting Trump than, than we might anticipate right now. Hmm. I, I thought it was interesting that that number was higher than any other number in recent history. I mean, but the first election I remember was 1984. I was in kindergarten and uh, my dad was an Air Force pilot. So we tended to like Reagan. But um, I just remember seeing that chart from Gallup and they had the different, you know, the, the different years where people felt they were better off. And it was even um, better than 1984 when there was this huge uh, economic recovery. So I think that's a, an important point, Joe. I mean, that, um, you know, whether this is an outlier, uh, it could play some sort of role potentially in the outcome. I want to transition to the media again a little bit because I just you brought up so many great points about the way the media covers the um, elections. And I thought it was really interesting towards the end of the book. I think there's a whole chapter just kind of on the media reaction to 2016. And I think one of the fascinating things that we heard from the media, because you had these mea culpas after the election, right? Um, that we're going to go to flyover country uh, and we're going to go talk to the voters that elected Trump and we're going to give them a fair hearing. And we made a mistake here in terms of maybe drowning them out or discounting them. But I wonder if the media, do you, do you have a sense? And I think this is somewhat related to the whole polling factor, but do you have a sense that um, perhaps they're, even if, even if Trump loses, are they making the same mistake again with some of the coverage of this election? I think there are a lot of people out there maybe that support Trump are frustrated with some of the media coverage. And, you know, I just really get into the role of the fourth estate and, and how they cover elections and how that's important for this country going forward. I don't think they've learned many lessons at all. And when journalists screw up a major story, as they did in 2016, about the outcome of this election. They, they gave little indication that this was going to happen, that Trump had a chance, really, of winning over Hillary Clinton. And when, when the news media do that, when they mess up a big story, they, they tend not to spend much time examining or considering in a public way why they went wrong or explaining to their audiences what happened, why they got it so badly wrong. And there are many cases in which this has happened over the years. And Media mea culpa, as you as you call it, Ray, you know, typically do not last long. And it was pretty that's, short. <laughs> that's, it's been the case in 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 the interval between the 2016 and the 2020 elections. The media haven't taken much in the way of lessons from that failure. They pivoted very quickly to 
Russia, 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 the Russia collusion scheme that supposedly explained why Hillary Clinton lost. That was a preoccupation for the news media for, for years, for two, two and a half, three years. And it, it came a cropper. It turned out not to be the explanation that they thought it was. <laughs> but, you know, there, there was an awful lot of attention that the media focused on this. And in fact, Pulitzer Prizes were granted to the New York Times and Washington Post for their Russia collusion coverage, which, as I say, turned out to be a non-starter. There was nothing there. And so, no, I don't think the media have learned their lesson at all. In fact, if anything, I think this year's coverage has been has been worse than in, than in any recent presidential election. I mean, the, the, the whole Biden, Hunter Biden influence peddling stuff, that has not been covered in any serious way by, by the news media uh, outside of, of some conservative outlets like the New York Post or Fox News. And I grew up in journalism. I was a journalist 20 years before I entered the PhD program at Chapel Hill. And in my days as a journalist, it was, we were taught and expected to not carry water for any politician or for any political party. It was kind of like a fine on both of their houses. You know, we, we were critical of both Democrats and Republicans. And we were not just sort of trying to protect one party or one candidate from another. I mean, this, this whole scenario that has unfolded just in the past month is remarkable. And it's really very unsavory. I don't think the news media have acquitted themselves very well at all in this. In fact, there's a lot to to deplore about what the media have been doing. So to answer your question, no, the media have, have, have learned very little from 2016. And in some respects, their coverage in this campaign is worse than it was back then. That's... Um, I th- I, I can say yes and amen to what you're saying Absolutely. right there. I think it's uh, it's something that is extremely unfortunate. Um, and then on the other hand, like is there is there any wonder why institutional trust to include trust of the media is so astoundingly low? Uh, trust for our government uh, at various levels, and then but primarily the federal government, but also trust for in media. These are incredibly low um i think the the exception is the military uh in some in some surveys as well as you know private organizations there's trust there but um i I think that walk away from you know giving both both sides of the aisle a fair shake as well as uh proper scrutiny has just done incredible damage to the media's credibility but then of course i say media and we're speaking very generally and broadly but with the dawn of new media and, you know, obviously the internet kind of opening up the floodgates and access to uh, various types of outlets, you know, people can choose where they get their news from. And so even if Twitter, for example, bans the New York Post article, people can still go to newyorkpost.com to learn about the Hunter Biden story. But it's um, it's just continuing to leave a bad taste in people's mouths, though, because they don't feel like they're getting correct news from anyone anymore. Or I'm correct news from the mainstream media, should I say, if they're leaning conservative. Um, many conservatives are very skeptical. So, uh, you know, you wrote something recently as well, in addition to uh, this book, but it's uh, an article at theconversation.com. How might the campaign's end game be disrupted? Here are five scenarios drawn from the history of election polling. So um, you list five different ways in which 
uh, this could shake out and then, but also kind of rebut yourself and uh, say why they might not shake out this way. So I just wondered if you could maybe give our audience a little sample of what some possible scenarios are come next Tuesday. Uh, by the way, Brooke, what'd you think of that little self-rebuttal? Was that effective? Or I was liked that. that. Like a, a cop out, do you think? <laughs> no, I, as someone who is very much uh, a believer in self-reflection and being my toughest critic, I really admired that. So it it spoke to me. <laughs> good, good to hear. You know, by the way, on on the on the media trust front, uh, which you mentioned in advance of your question. The Gallup organization has done polling about this, about perceptions of, of whether Americans can trust the media to give the news to them straight in a factual way. And this, these levels of trust have been dropping fairly continually since 1972. Why don't they care? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I, you know, I, it's an excellent question, and, and to which I have no real clear response. I think that they figure they're bigger than that. Or they figure that everybody attacks us, so if everybody attacks us, we must be doing okay. But it's pretty <laughs> clear that, that the media have given up, at least in, in, in covering this year's presidential campaign, have really given up on this even-handed, detached, impartial treatment of the news, which used to be the fundamental ethos, if you will, of American journalism. That, you know, right, that's, that's journalism 101, right? That's journalism 101. And, you know, Precisely. You, you're, you're first class in college if you're studying that. I mean, it's, it's ingrained into your head. I'm sorry, go ahead. And I mentioned in the, in the book, Lost in the Gallup, that, that uh, the former public editor of the New York Times, Liz Spade, was calling the Times out on this coverage that it was tilting too much to one side or another. And she was emphasizing that there is great power in detachment, in impartiality. Liz Spade didn't last long in that job. She was out as public right. editor within a year of being hired, and the position was abolished behind her. So, you know, it's, it's this astonishing statement by the New York Times about what they thought of internal criticism as she was supposed to and did deliver. Uh, but what could, what could screw up this year's presidential election trajectory? Well, it's getting late, you know, it is getting late. And um, a late October surprise is always a possibility. But since we're in late October, it's, it's, it is kind of getting late. And by a late October surprise, I mean something that's out of the blue, completely unexpected, jarring, has the effect of really transforming or altering the, the trajectory of the campaign. And I mentioned in the conversation article, this would have to be something akin to dog-faced pony soldier on steroids. And of course, that was the famous comment or infamous comment that Joe Biden made in response to a college student's question about his performance in the Iowa uh, caucuses. And she asked the question in New Hampshire. And Biden responded by calling her a name, by calling her several names. You're nothing but a lying dog-faced pony soldier. The October surprise that would derail, that would derail Joe Biden's chances would have to be an order of magnitude greater than, than, that, than, than that encounter, just to give you an example of what, what I'm thinking of. And in 2016, we had James Comey, 11 days before the election, announced that the FBI had reopened its investigation to Hillary Clinton's private emails and email server that she had been using while she was Secretary of State. That announcement, coming 11 days before the election, just had the effect of, of upsetting her campaign and perhaps gave enough undecided voters 
the information they needed to, to tip to Trump and away from Hillary Clinton. It might have been enough to tip the election in those key states in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, that were really crucial to the outcome. Another factor, another scenario is that we could see, again, a polling failure in those three states or maybe a couple of other states that are unanticipated. They come out of the blue and tip the election to Trump or give Biden a landslide. You know, if he if he wins Texas and Florida, you know, it's lights out for Donald Trump. It's it's we're looking at something approaching a landslide, at least electorally. So that's not expected now. But, you know, polling failure in states is not a bit is not unheard of. And it could happen. And it could happen. We might also see a 1996 scenario, which in which polls expected a easy lopsided blowout victory by Bill Clinton in his race for reelection against Bob Dole. I, I got a final question and I'll, I'll leave it to Brooke if she, if she has a final question. What's, I mean, you mentioned the states. What states are you looking at? Because what I'm kind of looking at a little bit, and it's not going to tip, probably it could, but it's probably not going to tip the election one way or the other. But Nevada has uh, really high unemployment. Uh, they've been hit harder than uh, any state just about. I think they're second in unemployment right now. And part of that's because of the gaming industry, but there are other issues out there. Um, and obviously, I think there seems to be, you know, I just read a little bit of the news coming out of Nevada. There seems to be a little bit more of a palpable frustration with lockdowns in that state than there are in other states. Is there, are there any states? And, and before I finish my question, I, I want to completely agree with you about the media uh, comments. I honestly just feel like the media coverage has been uh, abhorrent this election. I mean, much worse than even 2016. And uh, it, it's frustrating because I would I think that, you know, journalism is important. And, you know, this as a professor of uh, communications, but journalism is just it's just so important to this country and, and having a competent watchdog for the health of the republic, for the health of for, uh, of all of us going forward. But a, a final question. I mean, what states are you kind of looking at that might be a potential? Let's say this is a little bit closer than some folks are expecting. To me, it seems like Pennsylvania. But, you know, there could be like an outlier like uh, Nevada, maybe even Minnesota. That, that could be a surprise. Is there any other states that you're just kind of looking at and saying, hey, maybe maybe there could be a surprise here on election night? You mentioned Texas, too, or even Georgia for Democrats. But is there anything that you ju- kind of jumps out to you, Joe? I'm thinking that Minnesota might be the wild card on election night. Uh, I don't know how quickly Minnesota counts its ballots and, and reports returns, but you know, Trump's been devoting a lot of attention to Minnesota. He narrowly lost that state in 2016, and he might just pull it off this year for, for reasons that, that are not duplicative of 2016. Right. But it, it just might happen. And uh, another state, of course, is, is Florida and Ohio. What happens in those sort of early reporting states on election night, I think will we'll set, set a tone for what we can expect later on. And Florida did that in 2016, sort of signaled that Trump was going to win that state. And a lot of people were surprised because Hillary Clinton supposedly was doing pretty well in, in Florida. Michigan is another state, and they have a very, very interesting Senate race in which a Republican upstart candidate seems to be giving a, the, the incumbent Democrat, a colorless guy, um, really, uh, a very strong run for for his reelection, and of course North Carolina. 
How could I forget him? Right. Yeah, North you Carolina. can't. We we Which are going. Has a fascinating Senate race in and of itself. And we're living through it right yeah. now. Though, let me tell you. We're, we're looking for we're looking for exchanges where we can. Whoever wins, uh, some people are looking for an exchange if they can exchange the senators with another state. Yeah, I could see that. But uh, you know, Cunningham's chances, I think, have hit a nose, or maybe, maybe not nosedive, but they're certainly softer than they once were. And that sure, may have yeah. some. Yeah, he was. He 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 was. Starting to, he was starting to surge as that scandal uh, broke, and um, it certainly now is more of a neck-and-neck thing. And it's probably my prediction that whoever wins North Carolina at the presidential race will end up dragging the other guy across the, the finish line, but I could be wrong. I mean, but that just feels like, you know, there's not a ton of enthusiasm for, for either of those candidates here in North Carolina, but it, uh, certainly Cunningham is um, in some trouble. Any, any final questions, Brooke? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think that you have uh, explained this so succinctly, and I'm looking forward to reading the book, Lost in a Gallop. Yep. And uh, I know we can find that at Amazon. Are there other sites that you would recommend listeners acquiring sure, the pub- that from? The publisher's site, the University of California Press, uh, also uh, has the has the book available there. And uh, the press has been a great they 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 have, they have uh, been retweeting some of my reviews and and posts so i really appreciate the work that the california press has has done the university of california press has done um exactly right. in helping they, to bring attention they, to the book they produce not just my books but very handsome books they they really do a nice job with the production end as well as the editorial side it's it's a, it's been a fine press to work with i've been with them for the, my last three book projects and uh really they've they've been a joy pleasure to work with excellent well we are so grateful that you took the time to join us and offer us your expert insights i think that this is valuable especially in a state such as north carolina Uh, this is something helpful for our listeners and so thank you so much yes thank you so much brooke ray thank you and it's been my pleasure it's been a real fun time chatting about this and uh thanks again for having me on your show appreciate it absolutely